Good morning, church. It's great to see you. We're glad to be home. I feel like I should be sleeping right now. We're not really too jet lagged, but we're glad to be home. We have looked forward to seeing you on this day. I thoroughly enjoyed and loved the singing this morning. Did you? I was blessed. Someone said to me recently, there's something new going on here at Paznaz. The Spirit of God is at work in a new way. I sensed it this morning. I hope you've been sensing it. And I say that to you to also say, I want you to be praying about and thinking about who can you invite to be a part of what's going on? Because if you depend on me to do all the inviting, not very many people are going to get here. But if we do it together, we do it corporately, we do it individually, and if we're saying, hey, God is doing a new thing in our church, we want you to come and be a part of that, that resonates with people. Did you know there's a, there's a loneliness epidemic in America right now? This is a place that speaks into that. Common table on Wednesday night, Sunday school classes, lots of opportunity for fellowship, celebrate recovery. There's a place for people here. Pray about it, think about it. My prayer is God is going to put someone in your path for you to invite to be in this place with us to share this life with us, to be blessed by what we heard this morning already and let God do a new thing. Well, this morning we're in John chapter 17. Today is the seventh Sunday of Easter. It's also the last Sunday before Pentecost. And one of the traditional lectionary readings for the seventh Sunday of Easter is the 17th chapter of John. Because the 17th chapter of John is this wonderful high priestly prayer of Jesus as he is in this kind of liminal space, liminal, this transitional space. He's still physically present with his disciples, but he is also with one foot in the heavenly realm as he prepares to go to the cross. You see, liminal space is a transitional space, and as we listen to the text being read this morning, as we listen to the prayer of Jesus, as you read that, you can hear Jesus in that liminal space. Because he opens in those first eight verses with a prayer to the Father interceding on his own behalf. And he describes the relationship he has with the Father because the Father has given him the responsibility to tell the world about salvation and eternal life, and he is preparing now to move into a new portion of that. And it's, this is a... This prayer is a benediction to his farewell discourse. If you go back and read John 14, 15, and 16, the farewell discourse of Jesus where he does teaching about the Holy Spirit, he does teaching about heaven, 
He says, I'm going to a place and you know where I'm going and you will be there too someday. Then he promises the Holy Spirit, one who walks alongside, one who teaches, one who reminds, one who convicts, one who judges. But at the end of that, the scripture says, and then after this, he looked toward heaven and he prayed. And so he says, Father, glorify me. In other words, as I'm about to go through what is next coming, what is coming in the next few hours, in the next few days, glorify me. See me through this. May all that you have in mind for me come to full fruition. Glorify me. For you have entrusted to me the message of eternal life. And he describes in those opening verses of chapter 17 a very intimate relationship with the Father. He describes that they are aligned in their purpose. They're aligned in what they expect the outcomes to be. They're aligned in all things. And then in beginning in verse nine, he begins to pray for his disciples. He said, these are the ones you have given to me. These are the ones who are ours. And think about that. The earthly ministry of Jesus for those three years and all he has to show for his effort are 12. That's five, but five, five, two, 12. I know the math teachers among us were getting very concerned. After three years of intense ministry, all he has to show for his efforts are 12. And by the way, it wouldn't be the 12 you would choose either. They were only qualified by their desire to follow Jesus. They were qualified only by the condition of their heart, not by their giftedness, not by their skills, not by their talents, but they were qualified here. That's really important to us. The call of God on a person's life always begins here. Doesn't begin with your resume. Doesn't begin with your qualifications, your achievements. It begins with a condition of our hearts. Because God knows if God can shape the heart, everything else falls in place. So he has these 12. Actually, he's only got 11, doesn't he? because he prays for these 11, except for the one, so the scripture may be fulfilled. And so here is Jesus with these 
disciples. And what does he pray for? He says, Father, protect them. Some versions of this passage say, Father, protect them for they are fragile. They're fragile. I thought about having 12 of you stand up here with me this morning. And the first question someone had asked, which one of us is Judas? But take any 11 people out of this crowd this morning and gather them up. And if I were to say to the Father, Father, I pray for these this morning, I want you to protect them because they are fragile. Would you understand that prayer? Would you understand that in our lives there are places where we are fragile? Think about that. They're also fragile in that they don't yet fully comprehend all that's about to take place. They don't comprehend what it's going to mean for Jesus to go to the cross. They don't comprehend that they will soon be alone without Jesus. But their fragility is also seen in their failures. Judas. But think about Peter. What happens to Peter? They leave the upper room. The soldiers come to arrest Jesus, and what does Peter do? Whack somebody's ear off. Now, I have to tell you, in a dark alley, I want Peter. <laughs> right? And what does Jesus do? Picks up the ear, replaces it, heals it. I am remarkably impressed that through all of Jesus' prayer and through all of the events that follow, Jesus is always thinking about someone else other than himself. That's a condition of the heart. But then around a fire in the evening during Jesus' trial and crucifixion, someone says to Peter, aren't you one of those? Not me. Peter denies him three times. But what impresses me when Jesus prays this intercessory prayer on behalf of his disciples, and he says, protect them because they're fragile. He knows that they're going to fail, but he also knows there will come a time when they will mature and grow. And so the intercessory prayer is, protect them through their failure so they may become what you intend them to become. Friends, that's grace and mercy. It is the practice of God to us and it is to be the practice of the church to others. It is the practice of God to let us fail so that we might become mature and so that on the day of Pentecost, who becomes the main preacher? The guy who failed. So I say to you, friends, if you find yourself in a place of failure and you've disappointed yourself or fallen short of what you think the expectations of God are in your life, 
don't let that stop you. Because the love and grace and mercy of God and the intercession of Jesus is protect them and sustain them through so they will be what you intend for them to be. But in the midst of this prayer, in verse 11, Jesus says, bind them together so they may be one like you, Father, and I are one. Remember that very intimate prayer in the first eight verses? That prayer in which Jesus and the Father aligned and now Jesus says, God, protect them, sustain them, see them through, but unify them so they may be one as you and I are one. Think about this for a moment. The model of the relationship between Jesus and the Father is the model of relationship between the disciples. Wow. And as we go all the way through chapter 17, that thread goes through the entire chapter. Because then beginning in verse 20, Jesus prays for the next generation of believers. Think about what Jesus is praying for as he prays for the next generation. So what Jesus is praying for is the missionary effort because he says, as these disciples are unified together and people see the unity that they have together as you and I are unified, they will find salvation. The people who watch them will come to find eternal life. And so those who will believe the message I have given the disciples, I pray for them too. And think about that, because Jesus is praying for hundreds of generations of believers in that portion of chapter 17. Jesus in the upper room prayed for you. For you are part of the residue of that prayer. Mateo said it this morning. I thought he was going to start preaching. I wouldn't have to preach. Jesus prays for you. Jesus intercedes for you. Jesus knows that you're fragile. Somebody says, I'm not fragile. The moment you say you're not fragile, you've confessed your fragility. Think about that. So here's... Jesus praying for the generations of believers that will come out of the missionary efforts of the disciples. That comes out of their fragility that becomes maturity. That becomes strength. Last fall, we had the opportunity to visit the Basilica of St. John, just outside of Ephesus. And as far as we know, John is the only disciple to die of natural causes. 
Judas dies by suicide. The other 10 don't die of natural causes, but they die for the faith. Because Jesus has prayed for them, interceded for them. And what does Jesus know? Jesus knows that he has to intercede for his disciples and for all the believers that follow because they're going to face resistance. And he speaks in his prayer of the evil one. The evil one who's going to resist the efforts of the people of God to bring the kingdom of God to earth. And he comes and he seeks to create resistance. We just finished a series two weeks ago on, on Revelation and we talked in that series about the efforts of Babylon to resist the efforts of God to bring the kingdom to earth. And Babylon should be conceived as all of the efforts that seek to undermine the unity of God's people so that they get distracted from the message of salvation. And anything that Babylon can do to insert itself into the body of believers, to distract the body of believers, and to even create tension in the body of believers so that the unity is not as evident and it dilutes the evidence of the presence of God and it makes people wonder about the church. One of the things that Babylon does is that it uses labels. And, and I'm, I'm just going to share a pastoral concern. And you've heard it from me before in a different way. but I listened to a black preacher this week. And he said to his congregation, I am a Christian. I am not a black Christian. And he said, if you know anything about grammar, anytime you put a defining word in front of a noun, that becomes an adjective and it modifies the noun. And he said, so if I say I'm a black Christian, it now says my blackness is more important to me than being Christian because now it modifies what it means to be a Christian. And he said, so he said, I'm not a black Christian, you're not a white Christian. We put conservative Christian, we put liberal Christian, we use all kinds of labels that become adjectives that modify Christian. The problem with using definitions like that is twofold. One is it diminishes other people who don't share the same label that you want them to share. Are we okay? 
The other is, it diminishes the meaning of Christian in the sense that it dilutes it to say, I am a follower of Jesus as long as I can be this. You say, Pastor, why are you talking to us about this? Because Babylon has seeped into too much of the church globally, nationally, locally. And can I be intimately pastoral? Sometimes I hear it here. Sometimes I hear somebody say, you can't be a Democrat and be a Christian. So that means if you're gonna be a Christian, you gotta be a Republican. I never read that in scripture. But that oftentimes when labels are used, that's what we mean to say. And if we don't understand what we're saying when we add modifying adjectives to the noun of Christian, then we need to spend some time. Because the call of the scripture is to be a follower of what? Of Jesus. Only Jesus. I don't need to modify Christian with any other label. I just need to be Christian. And when Jesus prays for the believers that will follow the disciples, he prays that they too will be unified as Jesus and the Father are unified. And my pastoral concern for contemporary Christianity in the year 2023 is that labels can diminish what it means to be Christian and it the world sees that and says, those folks don't know what they're about. So why should I follow? Because Jesus throughout this chapter says, when people see the unity that God creates among an incredibly diverse group of people, they will be amazed and they will come to know Jesus too because the unity of God's spirit and the people of God has an attraction to the world that's tired of the labels, that's tired of the dissension, that's tired of all of that. And so friends, there is hope for us in the prayer of Jesus for unity because the other significant theme in chapter 17 is unity for the purpose of the salvation of others. And so here we are. As Pastor Mateo said earlier, we should celebrate that Jesus prays for us, that Jesus intercedes for us. One of the primary roles of Jesus in heaven is to intercede for us. Throughout the New Testament, the scripture speaks of Jesus interceding for us, praying for us, interceding for us for the purposes of salvation. 
Think about what that means. Whatever your experience in life today, you can live with the assurance that Jesus has prayed and is interceding for you in heaven even today. And that you and I are not alone. But we live in the grace and the mercy and the context of Jesus' intercession on our behalf. That we might be unified as he and the Father are unified so that others would know salvation. You okay? I think we heard the gospel today. And this morning as we come to our prayer time, I want to invite you to lean into an appreciation for what it means for Jesus to intercede for you. Because next Sunday when we come to Pentecost, and we'll be working out of two different passages of Scripture next Sunday. Acts chapter 2, the gift of the Holy Spirit, and the gospel. Actually, it's the book of Acts. Have you received the Holy Spirit since you believed? But what happens on that day of Pentecost? They're together in the upper room. There's 144 of them. And they're praying in response to Jesus' direction. And the Holy Spirit comes as a sound of a mighty rushing wind and anoints them and fills them and gifts them. And they are together, sharing life together. And all of Jerusalem is amazed. And believers are added to their number daily. Why? Because they have seen them unified as the Jesus and the Father are unified. That's the work of Pentecost. It's not simply the giving of the Holy Spirit. It's what happens out of the gifting of the Holy Spirit. So you can't stay home next week thinking you've already heard the message from next Sunday. Because Pentecost is a day the church should really, really celebrate. But as we come to this prayer time, I want you to lean into this appreciation for what it means to have Jesus interceding for us. Interceding so that we might be unified so that others would know Jesus. Because it's a really challenging question. Could we lay our labels aside so that our community could know Jesus?